Greetings already, I like it. Hello and welcome to Matthias's Lot. If uh, tonight is your first time here, I just want to say that we're, uh, we're so grateful just to have you here. Um, again, we apologize about some of the chaos beforehand and the breakers breaking. They said this gym has been here for two years, the first time they've ever broken a breaker. So in some senses, like, that's a huge accomplishment for us. So like, we start off the night really good tonight. Can we just give it up for that? I mean, that's just, we're breaking things. I love to break things. Breaking it. Kind of fun. No, seriously, if you, if you are here for the first time, welcome. Uh, we're, we're a church that believes um, in what Jeremy was talking about, that that girl was attracted to the fact that this church loved people. Uh, we think that love is good, but we also think that we can only love because he, the person of Jesus, first loved us. And so there's a difference between uh, wanting unity and loving and connecting that with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that at this church is central and key. So we're grateful that you're here. A quick poll the audience. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the terminology mountaintop experience? Just by raise of hand. Yes, mountaintop. Hold on, hold on. Leave, leave your hands raised there. Jamie, uh, percentage, percentage. Quickly, you got two more seconds. 86%. Okay. 86% of you, all right, have heard of this term mountaintop experience before. So as we're talking, I think this is going to make a little bit of sense for you. Now, last week we saw Peter, James, John, Jesus, Elijah and Moses on a mountain and Peter James and John got to see Jesus in all of his glory And and I would say that when Moses saw the glory of God back in the Old Testament And when Peter James and John got to see Jesus in the New Testament that I would say that that is where mountaintop experience derived right but 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 just to be honest with you I Like I know hate's a strong word, so I'm not going to say that even though you kind of know what that what, what I mean but when I was growing up every single camp that I went to, it never failed, like from 12 to 18. It was, it was the classic last, last teaching. The pastor would come up and he'd be like, all right, kids, you know, we've been up on this mountain this whole week. It's been amazing. All of us Christians just hanging out and doing jumping jacks. It's been incredible, you know. But now, kids, it's going to stick because we're going down in the dungeon. You know, we're going down in the world. This is going to be horrible. I mean, it never failed. Every single camp you ever went to, it was like, all right, it's great. But you know what? It's going to start stinking really bad. As soon as you get home, it's going to be horrible. So, like, in my, in my thinking, I would always go to my counselors and I would be like, uh, can, can we just stay here? You know, like, let's just... I'll call my mom and dad, you know, we'll move into the cabin. I know it doesn't have running water, but the porta potty's pretty nice, you know, like, like what's happening here? And it just, it put, it put in my mind this horrible thinking that when we somehow were separated from the world, that that's where we should stay, that, that that's where the mountaintop was. And friends, like, that's not the teachings of Jesus. When he says daily take up your cross, there's this image that you are to exist in the person of Christ every single day. And that cannot be all the time at some camp experience. And so every single camp that I've ever taught, it never fails. The last teaching I always say, you know what? We're not on some mountaintop experience. What's happened here is we have encountered Jesus Christ and you're going to go back home and you're going to have an opportunity to encounter Jesus Christ there too. And the next day on Tuesday when you wake up, guess what? You have an opportunity to encounter the real Jesus Christ. So tonight, where we're picking up in Luke is them coming off of this mountain. Not from this great mountaintop experience, even though it was an amazing experience but back into the existence of what Christ has called them to live in. Luke chapter 9, get there, open your Bibles. Luke 
chapter 9. Man, I'm pumped about tonight. It's great to see all of you. You're beautiful. I love you. This is an encouraging moment, apparently only for me. Verse 37. Here we go. You guys all there? Say I'm there. The next day, okay, again, this is like right after the transfiguration. So this is the classic camp. The next day, coming down from the mountain, transfiguration, seeing God in all of his glory. When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, this is not the the first time in Luke's gospel that we've seen someone with an only child. You remember just a couple chapters ago that we saw Jesus having compassion on a widow whose only son had died. You guys remember that. And we talked about the significance of a widow's only son to die in this culture is that that widow's son would be the breadwinner. That widow's son would be the economical uh, stronghold for this woman. And so, you remember this? The funeral procession is walking by. They don't even approach Jesus. Jesus approaches them, touches the coffin, and all of a sudden the boy lives. So this is another, I, I, another instance of compassion that Jesus is going to have on a man with an only child. And to be honest with you, it's the exact same significance. A man's son... In this culture, as the man would get older, guess who would provide for the older grandpa man? It'd be his son. Verse 39, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. Now, like there's some powerful stuff happening here. If you've ever heard of epilepsy, all right, these are the symptoms here. It's, it's seizing, it's foaming at the mouth, and in fact, Matthew even attributes this same story with epilepsy itself. But there's something here more powerful than, 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 than epilepsy. There is a spirit that is seizing him, giving allusion to what? That there is an evil spirit, that the evil demonic forces here are, are, are at work. And I was sitting down and I was reading all this uh, about a week and a half ago, and, and I was struck by it. I was like, man, it just, it seems like we just, I'm con- like we're constantly teaching on demon and demon possession, <laughs> you know? It's like this entire book of Luke, I just feel like it's been Jesus and demons, just like, you know, throwdown, WWE style. I'm like, what, like, what is happening here? And, and then, then I started to think about a whole other, like, gamut of questions. And, and I started to think about, like, all of the times in Scripture that Satan and demons are mentioned because I felt like in my mind that there would be some connection that like, that like something maybe was leading to, to the beginning of Luke. And, and check this out. Four out of the first nine miracles in Luke have to do with demons and exorcisms. Four out of the first nine. Quick percentage, what is that? 44%. Jamie, you're amazing. Yeah, autograph session for Jamie afterwards. All right? So, we're not going to do the limbo tonight, although some of you want to. All right? What I want to do quickly is I want to show you the findings of that question that popped into my mind. How many times in Scripture, beginning in the Old Testament, does the book talk about Satan and or demons? So this string here is not a limbo string. It's actually going to represent the times in Scripture that uh, Satan and demons are talked about. This is going to be a little bit of a barrier for us. So imagine from here to here is the entire Old Testament. Are you with me? Now, the first mention is what? The first mention of Satan or demons or evil is what? Genesis chapter 3. All right, Satan reveals himself as a serpent. That represents Genesis chapter 3 if you're a little bit slower tonight. It's okay, all right? 
In Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan and evil and demons represented as a serpent. And the serpent comes disguised, and he talks about how God is basically lying to Adam and Eve. That God is holding out on Adam and Eve. That, that God cannot be trusted. That's the first example that we see of Satan. That God is someone who cannot be trusted. So you know what you should do? Go ahead and eat of that tree because all the things that God said are simply not true. Now the next example that we see is Deuteronomy chapter 32. I need to keep that straight. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, we see the first mention of this idea of demons. We're going to see one later here in Psalm chapter 106. Anytime in the Old Testament that you see reference to demons, it is most closely related to false gods and false idols. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there was allusion to the fact that pieces of the nation of Israel had been worshiping and sacrificing to what? To demons. Now from here, friends, things get a little bit dicey. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, listen to this, we see the only, that's right, the only demon possession in the entire Old Testament. It's by a man named Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that this evil spirit basically comes over this man named Saul. The only demon possession in the entire Old Testament. I wish I could go more into that story because it's a very interesting story, but tonight we do, do not have time. The next example is 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, are you guys still with me? In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we see this idea of Satan, listen to this, rising up against the nation of Israel. And it's the first time in the entire scripture that we see reference to this person or being Satan. It's the first time. There's only three, my friends, times in the entire Old Testament that we see mention of this person or being called Satan. The first is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now, the next is a very famous passage, one of the most famous. What am, what am I talking about here? Three-letter book of the Bible. Job. Job is, is, one, of, is one of the most famous, all right? Satan and God have a conversation. This is the second of three times that the Old Testament calls uh, this being Satan. And in Job, we know this whole conversation between God and Satan, and Satan wants to evict all kinds of things on Job's household, and God allows it. And we've talked before, and we're going to talk tonight even more deeply. Nothing, friends, happens in this world without the allowance of God. And if we do not believe that tonight, then what we're struggling with is the authority of a sovereign God himself, nothing else. Nothing in this world happens apart from the control and allowance of a good and holy God. I know that gets dicey at times. I know that there's times that we have struggle believing that and understanding that and wrapping our human dome around that. But you know what? I'm personally thankful that we can sit back tonight and say, I'm, I'm so excited for the fact that I cannot understand why God would allow Satan to evict all these things on Job's household except to bring himself more what? Yeah, more glory. I love it, man. You guys are getting it. Now, the next example is Psalm chapter 106. And in Psalm chapter 106, we see the same mention to the word demons. And the psalmist writes about worshiping and sacrificing to demons, again, attributing it to false gods, that somehow these false gods have been empowered and evoked by something that is 
evil. So both Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Psalm chapter 106 both have the same rhetoric about demons. Now, the very last major mention in the entire Old Testament about Satan or demons is in Zechariah right before the New Testament. A little bit of a dry spell there. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see that Satan rises up against pieces of the nation of Israel to accuse Israel. And you'll remember that the root word of Satan is ha-satan, literally meaning the accuser, the one who stands and accuses and will accuse all of us, reminding us again of what we just sang about the grace of God, that Jesus stands in our stead and says, no, they are one of mine. Now, seven, the entire Old Testament. Some of you guys, Bible scholars, are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You left out too. Isaiah 14, famous scripture, right? Talks even about a Lucifer. This name Lucifer, that's, that's, where, that's where we get uh, the name from Lucifer, from Isaiah chapter 14. There's all kinds of controversy about what really is that passage talking about. Is it talking about a foreign king, maybe the king of Tyre, or the king of Assyria? And some of the other Bible scholars are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ezekiel 28, I mean, it just maps out like this entire map of Satan. Look, look there, there's controversy about both of these passages. There's none about these seven. So let's say seven or nine, shall we? Either way you look at it, what we know is the first mention in the, New, in, in the Gospel of Luke is in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, when Jesus goes to Capernaum and he heals a man who is possessed by a demon. Luke chapter 4. Ten verses later, friends, we see that in Luke chapter 4, verse 31, that Jesus is healing many. And a part of that healing many is his exorcism of demons. And in fact, he makes it clear when he talks about what he has come to do, and then we'll see it a little bit later about how he's equipped the disciples, that he has come to preach, that he has come to preach to the poor, to set the captives free. He calls the disciples to go out and to, and to cast out all demons and cure all diseases. Luke is not done. Luke chapter 8. Drenocene's man. Remember the demons get sent into the pigs? We just studied this a little bit ago, right? That man. And tonight, we see a little boy who has an epileptic seizure demon in him. Four examples already in Luke. Now, the interesting thing about that is if you remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus first begins his ministry, what happens? Satan shows up and does what? Tempts the person of Christ, beginning his ministry. All right? So we've seen so far in Luke chapter 9, five examples. I'm going to sit down for a second, okay? Let's just, let's just look at this for a moment. Can we make a few observations about this briefly? I mean... The Old Testament, I'm not sure if you're aware, but spans thousands of years. Luke so far, what we've been studying in the ministry of Jesus, let's say year and a half max. Thousands of years, year and a half max, maybe two years, okay? Seven to four out of the first nine miracles, including the temptation of Jesus. Some of you right now, you're starting to put the, the puzzle piece together. You're like, yeah, yeah, like what, is, what does this mean? Does this mean that, that like all of a sudden Satan like was laying dormant in this time? No, clearly not. Why? Because he's showing up. He's not laying dormant. He's real. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Zechariah chapter 3 in the, and right before the New Testament. So clearly he's real. 
But something happens post-Jesus showing up the scene. And all of a sudden, Satan seems to wake up. And all of a sudden, friends, look at this. Satan's damnation, the reality of his end, which will end in defeat up against our Savior Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? All of a sudden, that damnation becomes very real and present. But not just that. We see all throughout Scripture, especially 1 John, that light and darkness cannot what? They cannot be together. Light and darkness are in constant contradiction. God is light. We believe that. And now God, light, has come in the flesh to this earth. And Scripture says that Satan is the ruler of the world. Not the ruler of the universe, not all sovereign and all good, but has dominion over this world. And so when Jesus, the light in the flesh, comes to this earth, guess what starts happening? Is light and darkness start butting heads. And what we're seeing in Luke, friends, and the significance of this story is that Jesus is showing his constant defeat and authority about the one who thinks he has more. Is it possible? And Piper, I love, has a quote that alludes to this. Like some of you guys are thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I thought many times, like, like, like right after the fall, why didn't God just wipe out Satan? Like, why didn't he just take Satan, kickbox him, you know, out the window? Why didn't he just take him and break him over his knee or whatever it may be? Is it possible that Satan has been allowed to live so that Christ could receive more glory? And that all of this Old Testament, all pointing to Jesus, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Christ is allowed to live so that when Christ and Satan come up and begin butting heads, what keeps happening is Satan keeps being defeated under the heel like Revelation talks about. Come on now. It gives us this image that, man, all of this dormant time, all of this time where Satan and all of a sudden the light comes in the flesh and, friends, we see the authority of God. Which begs the question, how does authority work? Now, take out your pens if you'd like to and draw this with me here. A big outer circle a big inner circle, and then another inner circle. This is the authority pecking order, if you will, all right? This outer circle is God, is Yahweh, all right? That's a little bit obvious. Thank you. All right, this next circle is Satan. This next circle is man. Now, some of you guys are thinking like, yeah, yeah, like that, that's already looking a little bit dicey because I don't necessarily agree with that. This is the authority pecking order without the person and work of Christ. We've seen consistently in the Gospel of Luke an authority pecking order working. Now what happens is, when you combine man and Jesus, all of a sudden man's authority goes in between God's and Satan's. And all of a sudden, we remember scriptures from James chapter 4 that says what? Submit to God Resist the devil and he will what? And he will flee. We remember scriptures from 1 John chapter 4, 4 that says the one that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That all of a sudden, the authority that's even given to the, to, to the disciples that Satan has this authority here on earth, but now through Christ, we, only because of Christ, have 
authority and dominion over this evil realm that is real. That Ephesians chapter 6 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So friends, I, I need each of you to understand a couple things. I need you to see again that God sits on the outer circle of all of that. You've asked questions before. Why does good things happen to bad people? Why is there evil in the world? Why is Satan allowed to live? And friends, the only answer that is consistent in all of Scripture is that he's in control and that everything is about his glory. Every evil, every bad thing in this world that we see as bad, every purpose that we misinterpret as bad or good is ultimately about a sovereign God's good plan to bring himself more glory. Do you guys understand? There's never a point where Satan has more authority or control than our God. Anything that Satan does in this world is allowed to him simply because Yahweh decides so. Do you guys understand? Now, here's the other scary thing is that man, without Jesus, is what? Has nothing. Not only are you under the authority of God, but you're also under the authority of one who is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, who has come to what? Steal, kill, and destroy, the Scripture says. I don't know about you, but there are scary elements to that. Friends, I want this to be a reminder to each of us that Christ is all we got. He's our only answer, our only hope. And what we're about to see in this story is this being played out in flesh and blood. And friends, like we blame a lot of things on Satan that aren't Satan. We blame a lot of things on our flesh that aren't our flesh. I think we need to start incorporating God a whole lot more than we do anything else. Because ultimately, who sits at the top of that authority? Pecking order, friends. It is God. So tonight, as we dig into the story, is one of these scenes of light and darkness, bam, going head to head at each other. Back to Luke chapter 9. You guys all with me? Wonderful. Verse 40. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not do it. Uh, but they could not. Oh. Like we're... This, it gets dicey already. I just got done saying that man with Christ has what? Has authority over demons, right? And now we're like, I begged your disciples to drive out this demon. Back at the beginning of chapter 9, when you sent out the 12, they were driving out demons, curing diseases. So what's happened? And, who, and, and what disciples is he talking about? Three have went up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John. There's nine that are left. All right? Keep your finger here, and I want to read something in Matthew chapter 17 really quick for you. Flip to Matthew 17 with me, please. Just back a few pages. Sometimes we don't incorporate uh, different things here from the other Gospels, but I I think this is important. Um, Verse 19 in Matthew chapter 17, you guys all there, gives indication to this question like, uh, like, this man says, like, I begged your disciples to, 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 to bring him out, but, he could not, but they could not do it, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Luke does not record this. The disciples, do you notice, in private, like, they're a little bit embarrassed. Like, hey, Jesus, come here, dude. Like, like why couldn't, like, I know something happened, like, we didn't, like, wazam, like, something didn't work, you know? Like, why couldn't we drive out this demon? Verse 20, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. So the nine are left, and what are they struggling with? They're struggling with faith. 
right? This image here, man plus Jesus, like equals a great and tremendous amount of faith that he is willing and able to do it, to have authority. Because only, it's only through Christ that we have anything. You guys see that? It's not like all of a sudden we're like, yes, I have authority over all demons. Bring it on, devil. Please do not ever say that. And I'm being serious. Do not, um, Ouija boards, all that junk, man, throw that junk away. There's a real and present danger out there. But through the person of Christ, we have some great amount of authority. Now, Luke chapter 9. Go back there. Verse 41. Jesus, Jesus says this, O unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So with Matthew chapter 17 in the back of our minds now, I believe he's talking to the disciples, O unbelieving and perverse generation, which, by the way, any time in Luke or Acts that, that the writer uses generation, it's always done in, in a negative tone. So this is Jesus laying the smack down a little bit, all right? Oh, unbelieving and perverse. Would you like to be called that? No. Perverse generation. Like, what, what's happening here? He's looking to the disciples, speaking to the disciples, but I think he's also talking to the crowd here. Verse 22, or 42, Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. And this in the Greek is quoted one last throw. And, and literally, in Greek terms, this is a wrestling term. So this is like the last attempt of the enemy here on this little boy. And can, friends, can you imagine? I mean, we're talking about a child here. We don't know his, his exact age. Some commentators would say 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. This is a boy with epilepsy capped off by some massive spiritual power. Verse 42, even when the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father, which is the exact same phrasing of when Jesus gave the son back to the woman. And they were all amazed at what? At the greatness of God. You, you guys see this? Look at this. They get to stand firsthand and watch this in motion. And what does it cost? It causes them to realize that they are here. Do you see that? The good thing about this diagram is when you realize that God is here, it doesn't put you out here. They realize that God is in control, that He heals this boy, and it causes them to sit in awe of a great God, friends. That is the power of that authority in Christ worked out, friends. And then things get a little bit interesting. When everyone was marveling at all Jesus did, He said to the disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. This is the second passion reference. In other words, this is the second time that Jesus gives illusion that he's going to die. But he adds something here. What does he add? Anyone? Yeah, betrayal. That there's going to be a betrayal involved here. Now, this gets interesting. Look at this. Verse 45. But they did not understand what was meant. It was hidden from them. Implying that like Jesus is talking, but there's some veil that's been put over their face so that they don't understand from God, from whatever. But they, there's something that Jesus is saying here that they're not getting, they're not grasping. It could be their pride, whatever it may be. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And, and look at this. And they were afraid to ask him about it. It becomes the elephant in the room. You know what I'm talking about? It's like that thing with your friends that no one wants to say, but everyone is thinking it. You know what I mean? I mean, you're angry or something has just happened and you're with, you're in a room of about 10 people 
and you, you literally feel like, like you're piggyback riding with elephants. You know what I mean? I mean, just, can you imagine that? That's a phenomenal imagery, isn't it? Like a big elephant on my back right now. And, and there's just, like there's something massive in this room, but no one is willing to talk about it. That's the image I get in my mind here. All the disciples are wrestling with the fact that they just heard a little bit ago that Jesus is going to die, and now they're not understanding and not getting. It becomes the death of Christ, this like elephant in the room that no one wants, is afraid to ask him about. So, Jesus, you're going to die, huh? You know what I mean? Like there's this weird, there's this weird connotation here, but it's huge in understanding what happens next. Let's keep going. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. I mean, come on. I mean, like, aren't you right there? Aren't you one of these guys? Like, these guys just, I mean, there's no comedy needed. Like, there's no jokes needed in Scripture because we get the disciples. You know what I mean? Like, we have them to laugh at and make fun of and and see ourselves in this. Listen to this. They've just been casting out demons and healing people. And now they're sitting around in a circle arguing about which one of them is the greatest. There's a couple of practical reasons for this, though. The nine couldn't what? They couldn't heal this boy. I think you'll notice that oftentimes when you feel unequipped, it causes you to become jealous. And it's possible that these nine have just become jealous of the three who just got, just got to go up on the mountain with Jesus. And even though Scripture says that they didn't talk about it, it's still this image of Peter, James, and John. Do they always get to be with Jesus? They were with him when Jairus did that thing with the daughter and all that stuff. And now they're like, they got to go up on the mountain, you know, and here we are, like left. I bet I'm the greatest because that's what happens. Sometimes in your unequippedness and, and in your lack, it like goes the reverse. And you begin in your mind to justify thinking to yourself that somehow you have some greater thing to provide than any of the people who have just been chosen. Have you ever been on a kickball field when you were younger, right? Like you didn't get picked first, you got picked second, and you spent the whole game mad because your best friend didn't pick you as first, you know? It's like, come on. I mean, this is, our, like, this is the way we think. Like we always, but look at this, look at this. I love Jesus, obviously. Verse 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. When you're arguing, like unless you're some like mime, you know, where you're like, kick, you know, like doing this thing, when you're arguing, you're talking, right? Again, unless you're like some like miming fighter, you know, kung fu Chuck Norris person or whatever, like unless you're, unless you're Chuck miming, right? Like when you argue, you argue with body language, yes, but most of us argue with words. What, is, what does the scripture say about Jesus knowing they're what? Knowing the thought, Scripture says, out of the overflow of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. So the mouth is speaking the heart. If Jesus goes past the words of arguing and goes into their thoughts, what is he doing? He knows that deep down in their heart, they're really believing that their argument is valid. He goes past all the locker room words. No, dude, I'm the best, man. I threw that TD to that. You know what I mean? I'm, here I am. I'll pull us, you know. He goes past all of that. And he says, and he says, what you guys are doing by attacking their thoughts is you really believe that your argument is valid. And what does he do? He takes a what? A little child and has him stand before him. Now, some of you guys are instantly thinking, yeah, yeah, he's going to talk about childlike faith. Nope, not even close. Look at this, look at this, look at this. All right. Uh, Verse 48. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. 
So, like, instantly you're thinking childlike faith. Jesus brings his child. Look, if you just be as innocent as this. No, no, no. In Jewish culture, a child would be considered on the low end of the totem pole when it came to status. And so what Jesus is giving allusion to by bringing this child is by saying, if you accept someone who's of the lowest status, then what you do is you accept me, and by accepting me, you accept the one who sent me, namely God the Father. No, no, no. Our culture trains us to think a certain way. Have and have nots. Financially, there's people that have and there's people that have not. And you, in your mind, have developed a category for each one of those people. You see people instantly. By what they're wearing, you say they have or they have not. Parentally, you parents out there, you watch other parents in restaurants. You watch misbehaved kids. And instantly, in your mind, what do you think about? You think about the haves and the have-nots, the parents who are really, really good with their kids and those who are horrible. And instantly, you're categorizing every single person. Athletes, hello. Any athletes in the room tonight? Athletically, whatever sport you play, you're instantly looking at every single person and saying, no, 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 that person has something or they do not. We split, friends, culture in our minds based upon have and based upon have not. And it gets worse. We do this because the haves can provide us an advantage. We love to be around the haves. Why? Because the haves have something to give us. The financially blessed, if we hang around them, maybe they'll pay for a dinner or two. Can I get an amen? Right? If we hang around those people who are popular, it just may be possible, mean girl style, that we may, that we may take on some friends that they had and all of a sudden we'll be elevated and have some popularity. Did I just say mean girls? I apologize. God forgive me. It's a horrible movie. Repent and be saved, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's, um, Maybe it's in your profession. Whatever it is, friends, we've trained ourselves and our culture has trained us and the enemy has challenged us to see people in have and have nots. And what that does is it creates this exaltation aspect of us that causes us to sit around in our minds or vocally saying, which one of us is the greatest? Who can provide me the greatest advantage? And those are the people I want to be around. And what does Jesus say? The movement of Christ is the love of the have-nots. Is there somewhere inside of you that that just like makes your heart warm? That the movement of Christ is looking at the people who have no money, who can give you nothing in return, barely even a thanks, and that if you welcome all of those have-nots, the non-popular, non-athletic, non-economically secure. Because love in 1 Corinthians says that it's what? It's not self-seeking. Come on now. Friends, what does it mean to love the have-nots? When you will gain no advantage, when you will get nothing in return, that is the movement of Christ. And that places you in the center of that authority pecking order, realizing that you're in desperate need of one individual, and that's Jesus. But thankfully, the disciples still don't get it. Still another said, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, where are we at here? Verse, uh, verse 49. Master said, John, 
We saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he is not one of us. This is just classic, isn't it? So here's what's happening. John says, oh yeah, great story about the whole child and all, but we're going to go ahead and move on from there. You know what I mean? Like, I know that's really applicable and really, you know, relevant to us right now, but we're just going to go ahead and continue to be prideful because that's who we are. So there's this other group of people over here, and they're driving out demons in whose name? Jesus' name. So they're not like, they're not heretical, all right? But what they are is they're not one of them. Oh, but at our church, like you guys don't understand, like worship at our church, oh, you know what I mean? It just gets down, you know? Community love events at our church, like that other church across the street, I haven't even heard of them loving a homeless person or anyone in need. Like that church, like you should see, like when the breakers go out somehow, they still make it work. That's the danger, friends, is that in our minds, we keep asking ourselves, who is the greatest? And we look at the other church communities who are doing things in the name of Jesus, and we come to Jesus, hey, 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 so, like, they're not one of us, they're, like, they don't wear the Matthias shirt and can do, like, the Matthias dance, you know? So what do we do with those people? What do we do with those people? Like, do you want us to go stop them? Do you want us to go just, just halt them in their tracks? Friends, can I tell you something? Rivalry takes complete focus away from Jesus. Rivalry takes complete focus away from Jesus. We were a part of a church named Two Rivers that we're going to celebrate with and kick their booties, by the way. (laughs) Praise God for them. What they did is they stood up at their church service, and we've talked about this before, and they said, anyone who wants to go from this community with these guys... Please go. If these guys were to plant in our backyard, we would support them. Do you see this? What they said is, is we do not care about rivalry. What we care about is the kingdom. And so I don't care how many other churches are in St. Charles. What does it look like for the kingdom to grow together? What does it look like for relationships to be built with other churches? What does it look like to kick the butt out of pride and to say, you know what, no, no, if you're doing things in the name of Jesus, we may have some doctrine differences. We may have some theological differences and understandings. We may do things a little bit different. You may not have, uh, you may have a different band than us. But rivalry takes focus away from Jesus. And so what, what, what does Jesus say here? And we'll end here, friends, look at this. Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is what? It's for you. I want to propose something to you, other easel. Starting from the garden to now, there is a different sense. I'm going to try to pull this out here so you guys can see it on the other side. There's this different idea of authority that the enemy is trying to go after us with. And that image of authority is that me as Satan, coming disguised as lust, desires, pride, envy, I want you as man to understand that I can sit at the top of the temple like he did with Jesus and offer him everything. And so Satan, he doesn't want us to see him as Satan because that's kind of weird, you know, like, no, like, there are some Satan worshippers in America, but he doesn't want us to see him as Satan. It's disguised as whatever. So, so he is disguised, and I can't spell disguise, so I'll say this. The image from Satan is that man somehow becomes equivalent to Satan. 
And that somehow this phenomenal relationship just gets to have a blast. I can give you everything. God is a liar. You and me, like we can be tight. Like we, can, we can do all that we want. And that's the image that he's trying to give us of God's authority. Is God is over here trying to suck us in to his ruling authority. God is like the bad step-parent who just constantly is like pounding down rules on you. Over here is fun. Under God, it's horrible. It's all these rules. Friends, the disciples, I believe, grasp this, but they struggle with this. Anyone else? They struggle believing the lies of the flesh and of the enemy, but somehow God is holding out on you. And that somehow, listen to this, somehow his authority isn't beautiful. You see our struggle? We, for some reason, don't see this as beautiful. We struggle with that. We sometimes think in our ignorance, and the church sometimes supports this, that no, 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 this is the actual model. God is just a God of rules. The church is just a church of rules. We want everyone to come and follow us and just do our thing. That is not the picture of God's authority. God's beautiful authority is I am here for my purposes and my glory and all of you sit underneath that. And that is a blessing. Because without me, you are nothing. But with me, you will stand before Father God and be accepted even though you are completely depraved. Friends, the problem is we get so sucked in by our pride. So drawn in by these horrible desires of our heart. And we begin believing this. And we begin showing the world that that is the authority that we're under. Satan and us, we're in this, yeah, I know it's kind of weird to talk about him, but he's disguised himself so much. Friends, listen, I'm going to invite Jeremy and Brandon to come up right now. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Here in a second, the guys are going to start singing. I, I just want you to stay seated. I just want you to stay seated. I prayed all day today, um, and I told all the guys this, and even before the service, I was like, man, like I feel like there's a lot of potential for tonight. But I, what we prayed back there was, God, it's only potential. It'll only be some good time unless you show up and do a mighty work. And I'm praying right now for each of our hearts that God just grabs them. And friends, we're, I'm going to pose here in a second. When the guy starts singing, I'm going to put three questions up on the screen. And for a few moments, with the lights dimmed and nothing else around you, I want you to take some time and honestly answer these questions. As you listen to this song, let's just take some time, prepare to respond, sit in your seat, and reflect on some questions that I feel like, friends, will draw out some of those desires of our heart.